Namaste and good evening to all of you. Tonight, in our weekly satsang, I wanted to continue a little bit of the trend from last week because we took into account the fact that many of you are going through some tantric workshops and training with this series of workshops which is happening right now in Agama. And while last week I spoke about the relationship, what is to give a bit of a thought to what it is to build a spiritual relationship, because building a miserable, mediocre relationship is simply not worth it. It is a waste of time and energy, metaphysically speaking. So trying to muse upon the thing that I am in a tantric school, I contemplate on the possibility to create some spiritual relationship. What is actually a spiritual relationship? What conditions should it fulfill? Today, I want to continue in some way addressing the masculine and the feminine separately and then together by trying to inquire a little bit about something which is addressed next week in the training of the Vira, of the Shakti. What is the Vira nature? What is the Shakti nature? Why is it important that anybody should take that into account? And finally, the lesser known concept, which you hear sometimes for the first time in our Tantra workshops, what is the androgynous nature or the androgynal nature? Linguists have not completely decided if it should be put as androgynous or androgynal as um, epithet, as adjective coming from the term androgyn. So, for many people, this story which we have in Agama sounds a little bit... There are, many, there are several people who somehow decided to skip this factor of gender. And I'm not talking about those who are neurotic and they have a severe misunderstanding of it, but I'm talking about those that are spiritual and that are going for a deep analysis of their soul. And in an ultimate analysis... All of you would know that the human soul has no gender. In Vedanta, Atman, they prefer Atman rather than Atma, because Atman is a word which is in neuter gender. It's not a he, it's not a she, it's an it. The soul is neither masculine nor feminine. Both men and women have an Atman which means there is no female Atman and male Atman. Moreover, in Indian and Buddhist, in Hindu and Buddhist metaphysics, as well as in Oriental astrology, it is even considered that people most often, in the most common of cases, that people reincarnate alternatively as men, as women, as men, as women. As men, that's the most harmonious and simple way. If, for example, a man incarnates ten times as a man, and then, of course, the compensation has to come, because we are going to talk about the androgynal nature, the human being has to develop both sides willy-nilly, and then if after ten lives as a man somebody is forced to incarnate as a woman, then they feel not at home. There are women, and there could be a couple of them in this yoga hall tonight, who feel that it's very wrong for them to be women. 
who hate being women. When you were children, you wished you were boys. Not all the women. Most of the women didn't have that. But there are some who are completely upset at being a woman. I knew women who told me when I got my first menstruation, I thought I'm going nuts. You know, it's like I hated my body and I hated this weakness and softness. I wanted to be a man and to climb mountains and to do extreme sports in a manly way and all that. The yogic explanation is that that woman has been born as a man for many lives, several in a row, and has developed a lot of yang masculine characteristics. And now when she's in a female body, actually life is telling her, you have to learn to be a woman. Stop. Enough with the manliness. You have built up too much of that. Now you have to catch up with the other side so that you grow up in parallel with them. And if you go one male, one female, one male, one female, it's nice. It's easy. But if you go 15 male and then you go female, especially in the first one, it's really unpleasant because you don't feel at home. In similar way, there are men who feel they are women. There are men who when they dream sexual dreams, they dream that they have a vagina and they are being filled up by another masculine force. They don't feel... And there are women who dream that they have a penis and they penetrate in their sex dreams. Therefore, realize from the very beginning that the soul has no gender. We are forming some habits in a life. And there can be lives which are pretty much neutral, like nothing special has happened. I have seen in my life people whose life was pretty much inconsequential, like they were Mr. and Mrs. Nobody. And there were men, like when you lived the life of Genghis Khan, or when you lived the life of Albert Einstein, that's not inconsequential. It has lots of karmic consequences to be one of those. So some people produce lives in which the consequences can be major, and then the same is uh, valid in terms of masculinity and femininity. How much did Walter develop his masculinity in that lifetime? He was an absolutely average, nondescript man. He developed something because he had testosterone, he had testicles, he had male habits, so a little bit of masculinity was there. How much did olive oil or Mary or whoever our female character is, how much did she develop feminine? Well, this woman was not a pole dancer, she was not a Hollywood star, she was, not, she was a sort of an average, nondescript female person. Like, sure, she lived out her life as a woman, but there was nothing outstanding coming out of that. Therefore, for men and women, there is a sort of a rate of development. You develop. If you develop much more on one side, then you start having imbalances. And when you have imbalances, that imbalance can produce lots of trouble and lots of confusion. Very young souls born in a female body, they suffer. They don't feel at home. But they need that female body and they need their female life because life cannot accept that they will get even more imbalanced by being born as a man once more. There is a lesson to be learned in the polarity, in the balance. A man who has been female for a long time before, he feels not fit in a male body. 
and then he finds it difficult to acquire male virtues and that can that can be accompanied by synchronicities like there are men who are feminine and who had powerful one or two or several female lives before and then when they take a test i've seen such cases they have lots of female hormones when the doctors make an endocrine test that man is a normal man but he has an unusual amount of folliculin or other female hormone paradoxically and it's like the man is a man but still has a lot of female part. Or a woman is born in a female body, but she's an ex-man, and then suddenly her body is what some doctors, some geneticists call XXY. There are women who have a little bit of a weird Y chromosome attached to their DNA, and they are very boyish. They produce testosterone. They don't grow breasts too much. They do, you know, and it's like they are, and they are aggressive. They have testosterone aggressiveness and other things and they cannot explain it because remember if the soul is in a certain way the body will oblige it's the soul that creates the body not the body that creates your soul your soul comes with a karma to take hold of a body and of course if the soul has special needs mother nature obliges by creating a body with a special character so that's why sometimes in these cases of disturbed polarity, we find um, men and women that have a strange quality, even in terms of endocrine glands, genetics, and so on. So for many people, this story with the gender, like, okay, eventually we want to come to a simple idea. You may look like men and women, you may have some qualms, some issues, but ultimately that soul which is in your heart or in your crown, wherever you want to locate it, that Atman has no gender. So why do we preoccupy ourselves? Like we have to live a life which in the end you reach to no gender. Even God is the sum total of Shiva and Shakti. God is neither Shiva nor Shakti. God is Shiva Shakti. That's why God in Vedanta is Brahman, the Absolute, which is an it. Brahman, it ends in N. It's, an, it's a word which grammatically is neutral. So we are going to become Buddhas, immortal souls, and that soul doesn't care about the gender. So then why in Agama do people bother organizing Vira workshops, femininity workshops, like, what's so important about developing masculinity or femininity when your soul has no gender? We should all, like Paramahamsa Yogananda, or like I don't know which great spirit, we should all go and become without gender. We are children of God. There is no masculine and no feminine in bliss. In bliss, beyond the beyond, there is no polarity. In Sahasrara, there is no polarity. So why do we even waste our time focusing on polarity? This is a characteristic which is specific to the tantric lineages. Because tantra is enacting the drama of the cosmos. Tantra is not looking only at the top of the pyramid where there is the one. Tantra is looking at the step immediately under the top of the pyramid where the one becomes two. The Tao 
splits into the yin and the yang. Parabrahman or Anuttara Paramashiva splits in Shiva and Shakti. This is the first thing which happens in the universe, that there appears a polarity. The one turns into two, splits. The Tao, which is a circle, gets split into the yin-yang symbol. There are two inside the one. So, that's the beginning of the dialectics. That's the beginning of the evolution of the universe. That's because when you have plus and minus, it's like a battery. If you have plus and minus, you can produce light or fanning. If you have no plus and minus, if you just have one, there is no electricity when there is one. So, so that there would be energy and polarity and movement and evolution and space-time and everything, you need two. Those two start dancing and the Chinese have called this in their Taoism, I Ching, the book of transformation, the transformation that yin and yang form an endless combination of varieties, first as trigrams, then as hexagrams, and then the whole universe is generated by those archetypal elements. So this being said, Tantra, the tantric traditions, they realize, wait a second, there are methods in which we may want to go beyond the gender. Like, I meditate that I am a child of God, and that's it. And I pray, and I do this. I don't care if I'm man or woman. Then, my lineage is that, first of all, I don't manifest any gender. Like, this is applying very much, although there are some exceptions even there, it applies very much to men and women who practice a spirituality which is based on celibacy. If you are celibate, you don't need to be a man or a woman. Actually, in most of the religions which are based on celibacy, the male element is slightly favored. Because the male element is a bit more detached from matter and from the body, is a little bit more tough when it comes to the challenges of life, like it can take pressure and a beating, or whatever it takes. No? And then it has been favored. Generally, when we look at the people who did Buddhism, Vedantic Hinduism, Christian mysticism, prophets of the Old Testament in Judaism, Sufi mystics, most of them have been not only male, but if they were female, they were tough. They were not uh, little hands cackling silly. Like a woman like Teresa of Avila, just to take a Christian saint, or a woman like Laleshvari, to take a Kashmirian saint. From, they were women who were very, very strong and masculine. Masculine. That is valid in many, many other fields of interest. I will not divagate now, because some of these things, we discuss them exactly in those workshops to make things understood more clearly. There is no time in a two-hour or one-hour-and-a-half presentation like this to go there. So what I'm trying to suggest here is this. Many spiritualities, they did not cultivate gender. There is a non-gender slightly on the masculine side. For example, the old Jews, they thought that women can't do it. 
and they thought that if you wanted to do Kabbalistic spirituality or something, you have to be a Jew, a man, and over 40 in terms of years, of age. That was what qualifies a Hebrew to make Kabbalah. Man, Jewish, over 40. If you don't fulfill these three, the, all the more traditional Kabbalists, they don't want to hear about you. Of course, today we hear that Madonna is studying Kabbalah, because we are in the 21st century, and some of the traditional rules are not being respected anymore. So what I'm trying to say is this. In some forms of mysticism, the male tradition is a little bit favored. For example, in India, when the British made a survey of the yogis, how many yogis were there in India in 1930? The British were very organized, you know, they, and did, they did polls and surveys. So they said there is a bunch of Indians who call themselves yogis. Let's see how many of them there are in the whole of India. So they made a survey, a national survey, and they tried to find out how many are men and women. There were five times more male yogis than female yoginis. One female for five men in yoga. Why? Because yoga in India in 1930 and earlier was very tough. There was a lot of rigid discipline, not to mention that even now women are getting raped in buses in New Delhi, and in those days a woman just walking alone through the forest and pretending she's a yogini would be pulled in the bush by any vagabond and raped and then released to go further. So it was not a safe environment for women, so women who wanted to be yoginis, they had to put a lot into it to compensate for the hard world and unfair society and other things in which they lived. It was more easy for the, a boy's family to let the boy go in the forest and be a yogi than for a women's family to be let by the family. Like, okay, you want to be a yogi? Yeah. Your dad would say, okay, you can go in the forest and be a yogi. No way, your dad would kill you before letting you go in the forest to be a yogi in the 1930s in India. So, of course, women had to push much more in those days, and that's why the ratio was like this. But, also, the masculinity was favored in some strange ways. I'm just calling on your attention because when we analyze spirituality, most of you have read, even in yoga, when you read Paramahamsa Yogananda and Shivananda and these kinds of people, these people come from a patriarchal, macho type of spirituality, which most of the ascetic spiritualities are. There is a fascinating episode <coughs> in one of the Gnostic Gospels, which are Gospels which allegedly have never been censored or checked by the Church, by the Catholic Church or whichever. Like, there are original literature from the 1st, 2nd, 3rd century. They can be written by some schizophrenics who just raved, because many people invented Gospels and shit like this, exactly as today people claim that they receive messages from the Pleiades and they have something very important to tell to humanity and they make prophecies that in 2012 we are going down the drain and then when it passes they say, oh, oops, you know, it was not really true and so on. So there are many raving lunatics on the face of this earth. And don't think it happened only in the 20th century. Religion was full of raving lunatics 20 centuries ago. So in Christianity, don't take it for granted that whatever you find written from the 2nd century must be true. Because it could be written by a 
lunatic or by a schizophrenic, and it's not necessarily true. So, in one of these Gnostic Gospels, which seems to be more close to like somebody more inspired by the actual events wrote it, there is a strange event that at some point Peter, Peter the Apostle, who seems to have been a very solar, macho man, he gets disturbed by the presence of Mary Magdalene, that suddenly in this group of apostles there is a woman. And he's asking Jesus directly, you know, like, we are Jews, we know that if you are not a male and not a Jew and not over 40, you are not welcome. What is this woman doing here? She's not 40, she's a woman, okay, she's Jewish at least. But what's she doing here? Like, are you changing the rules of engagement? Funny. Jesus, the great Jesus, Avatara, son of God, he doesn't say, what are you talking, Peter? All this Judaistic thing which we inherited from our ancestors is nonsense, for God's sake. It's perfectly okay with the women. Jesus doesn't say that. Jesus says something scary. He says, don't worry, because I shall turn her into a man. And thus, she is fit for the teaching and all that. Jesus doesn't say, oh, women are welcome. He says, women have to masculinize themselves and then they can do this tough work which we do. When you look at the women who made big steps in Buddhism, Hinduism and the others, they are Sufi women. Very few of you have seen Dargas or heard about Sufi Dargas, which are exclusively female. While most of the Sufi organizations, like in Islam, women do practice spirituality. There are some very secluded Sufi Dargas in eastern Turkey and in Iran and so on, which are 100% female schools where only women are allowed and they practice their Sufi spirituality. You know? And whenever you look, there are also, in many other places we could continue, Chogyam Trungpa describes Buddhist female monasteries in Tibet. And Chogyam Trungpa says, you know, women usually don't do too much of this Buddhist thing. Most of the Tibetan monks were male. But he said, I was in charge of 11 monasteries and three of them were women's monasteries. And he says, I can tell you, whenever I visited those monasteries, because he was like the over chief over 11 monasteries in the whole geographic area, he said, I got ashamed. Because he said, those women were practicing yoga three times more than the men. You know, all the men in the other eight monasteries, they were lazy bums compared to those women. Like those women were compensating their feminine nature by going very masculine. No? I could tell you so many things and give you so many examples. And therefore, in the traditional spirituality, there is an emphasis on the male thing and at the best, there is a sort of a no-gender. But if you say that Milarepa was a no-gender person, nevertheless, Milarepa stayed 40 years in a cave and ate stinging nettles and did 12 hours of spiritual practice per day, from morning till evening, 24-7, basically. That's a masculine attitude. It's not a feminine value. And thus... We constantly see that this vira aspect is being highlighted. In most of the non-tantric spirituality, the shakti aspect is not very welcome because they don't know what to do with it. 
because you need to wake up at 5 o'clock in the morning to do your kriyas, to go to the church and pray to Jesus Christ, to come in total silence, like you are allowed to say 7 words per day, not 8,000 words like some women do. It's just 7 words per day. That's a masculine thing, yeah? Not to be allowed to talk too much. Yeah? And you are going to the breakfast, and the breakfast is very severe. It's just some rye and rice and dal and stuff like this. You're not eating uh, juicy, delicious things. You're just eating Spartan. Then from the breakfast, you go again to the church and you celebrate the morning service. Then you go to your cell, rest for 15 minutes. Then you go and start working. You go in the workshops of the monastery and start doing different work. Painting, embroidering, carpentry, whatever you do. That's the life of a nun-monastery. No, like there is nothing delicious, relaxed, comfortable. They sleep on slabs of wood or on slabs of cement. When they get horny, even Teresa of Avila, who is a great saint, I have seen when I visited her monastery, I have seen her discipline, the so-called discipline, which is a whip, which is full of blood, by which she whipped herself when she wanted to have an orgasm. Every time she got horny, she didn't masturbate. She took her discipline, which was a whip, and she beat herself to blood, to pulp, until her horniness subsided. There is no feminine attitude, even for Teresa of Avila, in this. Mysteriously, all these spiritualities which cultivate a Spartan lifestyle, Buddhist monasteries, Indian ashrams, Sufi dargas, all of them, they cultivate a Spartan lifestyle. Uh, all of them, at the same time, they praise a sort of femininity at the higher levels. Like God is the groom and your soul is the bride. And like a bride, in the wedding, in the night, in the wedding night, you should open like a flower to God so that God penetrates you. God is your male and you give yourself to God. And that's why they said that some women who manage to go over the beginning stages and to really get perseverance and practice, they do better than men later because men are still a little bit macho and so on while women know how to surrender. So when women pray, yeah, if the women pray 15 minutes per day, that won't amount to much. That's just maintenance, bourgeois maintenance prayer. But if a woman prays 8 hours per day, then that woman, when she gets over the first hurdles, she will become very good at prayer, because as a woman, she knows how to surrender. She knows how to give herself to God, like come inside me and do whatever you want with me. I belong to you. This kind of female surrender power, which men, the men's nature, even when they do prayer, they don't understand very well. So I'm calling your attention on the fact that while most of the ascetic religion favors in the beginning a lot of vira, then in the end, there is a bit of androgenity. There is a mixture because there comes the feminine element, but not on the front things. As you know, Christian women living in monasteries, they would consider it a mortal sin to use lipstick, eyeliner, things like this. You never do that because that turns you into a woman who just wants to be admired physically. Sometimes even men 
manifested incredible denial of the body in the same way. There is this famous story from the fathers of the desert, especially those who lived in the Sinai Peninsula in uh, today's Egypt. And uh, there is one of these stories in which in a monastery there comes a young man, a beautiful, handsome young man, like 16 years old, 18 years old, beautiful young man. And he goes to the door and he says, I want to join your monastery. And the abbot looks at him and he says, I won't take you. And the young man says, why? I mean, I understand, but give me at least a reason to know if I'm doing something wrong. And the abbot says, please, excuse me, but you are such a beautiful young man that I'm afraid that some of the brothers might be tempted to become homosexual with you. You are too beautiful for a man and even some of the brothers might get horny for you. And he says, I cannot risk this in my community. This young man goes, he buries himself into the ground, he smears his face with the juice of a meat, takes a piece of meat, and he stays. And the ants are coming all over his face, and they are biting him until they disfigure him. They make him look like a leper, like he had the bubonic plague or something. He looks like a zombie. And then he goes to the monastery and knocks again after three days. And when the abbot comes, he says, now you take me. This is the masculine type of resistance which is required in those religions. There is a story of a Zen monk, which my friend Sahajananda likes very much, who goes to a Zen monastery from Japan like 40, 50, 60 years ago. And he goes... And that guy let him wait at the door for five days or something. They told him, there is no place in the monastery. And, like, and the guy slept at the door. And they kept opening the door every 12 hours. And they gave him a little bowl of rice. And they said, we are pity of you that you are starving in front of the monastery. So here is some food. But don't think this means we are going to take you in the monastery. We told you, the monastery is full. There is no place. Go somewhere else. He stayed there for five days, in rain, in cold of the night, in whatever. After five days, they gently opened the door and they said, you are welcome to come in. No, This is not a feminine nature. This is a woman. If a woman does that, of course a woman can do that. But that woman is a bit of a male in her heart. It's a masculine value. You have to harden yourself. You cannot afford to cry like a little baby, you know. That man, after two days, would have said, Oh, these guys are persecuting me. There's no way to be a crybaby if you want to go into a Zen monastery. If you want to go into a Zen monastery, you have to be prepared to die. No? And that's, so that's why I'm telling you that, unfortunately, most people are prepared for this ambiguous thing, that people have to be no gender, However, people have to be slightly heroic, even women have to be slightly heroic and tough, Spartan, which is a yang thing, in all respects, about how you look, about everything. And in the higher levels of practice, you have to be humble and modest and surrender, which is more like a female value. So it's a strange mixture of things, which leads to a sort of a state which is genderless, in which the gender ultimately doesn't seem to matter too much. That's not the case in Tantra. Because in Tantra, either you are worshipping female deities, 
or you are worshipping Shiva or other male symbols. And in Tantra, especially if you do sexual Tantra and you are interacting with one or several sexual partners in Tantra, then the polarity becomes very significant. Because simply even if you don't feel it, the other one feels it. And the other one seems like a woman wants to go with a man. And then the woman says, hey, I want you to be really masculine with me. And the guy says, but we are children of God. We are neither male or female. Yeah, okay, fuck off, go somewhere else, you know. It's like that's not what the woman was expecting from that man. Now you are playing, you are coming and you are becoming a philosopher and a poet. Go and do philosophy and poetry somewhere else. I'm in a tantric school, I want polarity. Like in Tantra, men and women are enacting the cosmic polarity of Shiva and Shakti. And that's why there is this problem, because in Tantra, each one must play a role. It's like a role playing. It's like you say, my soul has no gender, but in this life I have been put by the director of this great play called Manifestation or Existence. I have been sent to play a male role. It's exactly like God says, you are going to be Hamlet and you are going to be Ophelia. This soul will play Hamlet and this soul will play Ophelia. If Hamlet starts behaving like a girl, the director says, you are screwing my play. Hamlet is supposed to play Hamlet. Tormented soul and everything, but a man. I don't want to see a Hamlet coming up in skirts and with stay-up stockings on him, you know. That would be some sort of ultra art nouveau, innovative, some sort of modern bullshit theater or something like that. But if you want to play Shakespeare, Hamlet is a guy. And he has the problems of a guy. Therefore, the idea in Tantra is this. I know that my soul has no gender. But momentarily, I'm born as a man or as a woman. And therefore, I have two choices. If I don't want to play this role, I'm simply saying I'm not a man, I'm not a woman. I go in Sahasrara, I go in central meditation, nor yin nor yang. And I'm becoming an androgen. I'm transcending the gender. I'll come back to the word androgen because it's a difficult alchemical word and it's used only in some Jungian psychology. So many people don't know about it and the etymology and what it involves. So some person can say, I am born as a woman, but I don't care to be a woman. Okay, then the answer is, don't come to Tantra. Tantra is not for you. If you don't want to play the role of your gender, go into a Christian monastery or into a Buddhist monastery. Because the tantric method is a method which uses the polarity. It says, although your soul is without gender, right now, it's like a karma yoga. Like you can say, I'm a yoga teacher. My karma yoga is to teach yoga. Yeah, but were you a yoga teacher in the previous life? Were you a yoga teacher two lifetimes ago? Will you be a yoga teacher in the next life? If you will have another next life? So you cannot say that your soul 
is born to teach yoga. Teaching yoga is a temporary role. It's a dharma. You say, in this life I take upon myself the dharma to teach yoga to the world. That's not the nature of your soul. Your soul is beyond that. So exactly as a yoga teacher says, now I shall be a yoga teacher for the next 50 years of my life. Exactly in the same way, a tantric man or a tantric woman says, since I look in the mirror and I discovered I am born as a man, I will develop the dharma of a man. It's like I accept the role in which the director has cast me. And therefore, I shall play the role of a man. It's a karma yoga. I am assuming it. I am owning it that I am a man right now. The universe wants to do something through me as through a man or a woman. And I am doing it. That's why in tantric tradition there exists a sort of a surrender to the role. And you know that that role might not be forever. Because the soul doesn't have a gender. But here and now. Here and now in this life. Maybe I don't even have a clear proof that I had a previous life. And I will have a future life. Then the simplicity, the Occam's razor, simply says here and now. In this life, right now. What are you? What are your characteristics? What is your strength? And what is your weakness? And all that. Therefore, some people are playing a role. No? Like, again, if I am a man, I say revolt. You know, I don't know why God made me into a man. I want some female role. Really, can I have maternity? Can I have something, some life sprouting in my womb? And produce a baby from my own flesh and blood? And give birth to it? And then it will breathe and become a human being? I cannot. As much as I revolt against the thing that I'm born as a man and not a woman, I can't really become a woman. Except, like, you, you can have sex change surgery, but those are surrogates and everybody knows. No, the thing is that you have to die and to be reborn in a body of the opposite gender. That's the only way you can 100% manifest the other gender. And if I have a gender right now, either I like it or not, Either I accept it or not, there is a lesson. Like maybe I have been masculine for too many times and I became insensitive. I became a soldier of fortune. I killed people in wars. I did a lot of... Ma I'm insensitive. I can cut the throat of chicken and then we fry them and eat them. You know, most women cannot cut the throat of a chicken. Most men can cut the throat of a chicken without a blink. No, it happens all over the world that man sacrifices animals and then the family fries them and eats them. Sometimes some hardened women also do their job, but generally it's men who do this job when they do this job. And therefore, you know, it's like we know that we have certain characteristics and the question is if we endorse them. And if I have been a man for too long time, then nature says now it's time that you become sensitive. Now it's time that when you see a violent scene or something, it touches you. And then I hate myself because I remember that there was a time when I could be hard as steel. And now every time when I have something, <gasps> I feel touched. And then I want to smoke a cigarette or something not to be touched anymore. You know, I hate myself for being a woman. But there is a lesson 
in being a woman and I should go exactly into that sensitivity because the universe says you forgot to be also sensitive. You've been a little bit too much on the insensitive side and it starts becoming a custom. It starts becoming a habit. It's time to break that habit and now you have a life like this. So every time this alternative life path is trying to teach us how to develop what was left behind. Because one part of us is always getting left behind. We're never equal in our development. And this being said, there are, again, you can say, are there any exceptions? Like there can be a relationship where a man is very feminine and the woman is very masculine. And they even share, you know, they, they live with that. And actually the relationship, although it's a highly unusual relationship, let's just call it in a civilized way like that, the relationship is a sort of a success. Like it worked. It can work with reverse polarity. But how many cases are like that? 1%. You cannot make a rule from 1%. Exceptions are exactly that. Exceptions are exceptions. And 99% of the rest of the world is not a weird exception. So that's why we cannot use the exceptions as a norm. As a norm, we use what's happening to most people. And to most people, it's happening that they live a polarity according to their gender. They may have problems with living out their polarity. No? There are, you know, we have this, that some men, when they start Tantra, they are very sensitive sexually and they cannot hold their ejaculation. No? And they are like, you know, very yin. And then they say, I don't know why, maybe my Svadhisthana is a female Svadhisthana, because if I had a male Svadhisthana, I would have a very good Brahmacharya. It can be that some women have a male Svadhisthana, and then they say, I don't know what's happening. All these boys, they come in 30 seconds inside me, some of them not even get to be inside me, and they come, and nobody can bring me to orgasm. I don't know what the heck is happening. No? I need to make love to Genghis Khan to have an orgasm. You know? Because my Svadhisthana is too strong for most guys. No? So there are problems like popularity brings up endless amounts of problems in human life. And our life sol sorts them out. It's part of our Dharma and it's part of our evolution that we have to learn new lessons in every life and we have to grow up. We have to evolve. The law of life is evolution. We are here to evolve. And evolution means that we develop new skills and new understandings and deeper and deeper things. So that's why we cannot teach the exceptions. We can teach the norm. And the norm is according to polarity. That's why... Men copy Shiva and women copy Shakti. If you are a materialist or an atheist and a sort of a anthropologist or something, you are going to say that Indian philosophers, they have created Shiva. It's not true, Shiva created them. But materialists absurdly believe that we created the gods. So that people created Shiva as a sort of an archetypal masculine personality. And that they created Shakti as an archetypal feminine 
personality. And then we copy it. If you think spiritually, you can say that human beings are like reflections in multiple mirrors and they are a low-level reflection of something which pre-exists to humanity and to the human beings in general and which is that they are the cosmic archetypes. And in this way, we can understand a few things. First thing to which we look and which... uh, helps us understanding some of the characteristics of the Vira and Shakti. And of course you are going to learn these things in the Vira Shakti workshops. For those of you who will attend it, maybe some of you will attend it next year or some other time. I'm just um, saying a few things there. Is studying the polarity of the chakras. Because in the polarity of the chakras, we understand already like what is masculine and feminine on Muladhara. Masculine on Muladhara is hunter and feminine on Muladhara is prey. Like most women like to be the prey. Many women come and I tell them, why don't you just find yourself a lover? And they say, Swamiji, I want some men to come and woo me. I want some men to court me, to flirt with me, to try to pick me up. And I will say no and play hard to get. And, and then eventually I will give myself. But I want to be hunted. That shows that the muladhara of that woman is feminine. You are going to find in Tantra women who went way beyond that and they say they are a bunch of wimps, some of these boys from Agama. If you don't go and pick them up like this, they won't come with you. I don't know what they are doing. You know, they are sissies. You know, and you just need to tell them, hey boy, come. You know, it's like the women hunt the men instead of the men hunting the women. No? So, the hunter is male. The hunted is female. That's a polarity. It's archetypal. It's based on the hormones. It's based on the energy of that chakra. On Svadhisthana, the polarity is that the men are this masculine, slightly macho. It's like the sexual masculinity, the gigolo masculinity, the Chippendale masculinity. And for women, is the female sexual femininity, the Marilyn Monroe, the, I don't know, go-go bar dancer and so on, on Svadhisthana, being on Svadhisthana, female, male. This polarity is so difficult to understand and we skip it usually quickly because almost everybody is in Svadhisthana and they are like fishes in the water. They can't see it. It's all over. The whole humanity depends on this and it's the most difficult to see because you are in it. The polarity on Manipura goes master Slave. Master slave. The, the solar Manipura is like a general and the lunar Manipura is like a soldier. Japanese women, they have said, you are my man. If you go to battle, here is my samurai sword. I go after you. I am like, you know, if you die, I die. I follow you. Like, try to think a little bit about the loyalty of Japanese women and sometimes other oriental types of women. Especially in the Orient, you find this femininity, this geisha type of femininity. (coughs) How does it manifest? Master-slave. And some people feel offended. They say, what should it be like this? You haven't thought enough, and I don't have the time to explain these things tonight, but meditate on it. Like those of you who are men, 
Have you ever been the master of a woman? Those of you who are women, have you ever been felt like the slave of a man? Naturally, without any offense, not an exploitation thing, like a sort of, you know, I don't know, but naturally I feel like I surrender totally. That's Manipura. It's more rare. The men and the women who don't have Zvadistana, I'm sorry, who don't have Manipura and who are very much in Zvadistana, they can't even feel it. They reject it. They say, what's that? That's because you are an incomplete human being and you can't understand one of the chakras. The masculinity on Anahata and femininity, they go superior like cosmic, the upper half, and inferior like telluric, the lower half. No? Like when you go and visit Dalai Lama and he gives you a scarf or whatever he gives you, do you feel superior to Dalai Lama or inferior? Is that offensive? Is that putting you down? The fact that you go to Dalai Lama and you say, Sir, I'm very happy to have met you in this lifetime, in this physical body. No? And you feel, here is a man that millions of Tibetans and many monks and nuns respect as a spiritual leader, there must be something to this guy, because otherwise everybody would say, hey, Dalai Lama, he's a joke, forget about it, and so on. No, they don't. No? So there must be something to that man. No? And would you respect? Or are you a totally non-respect thing? Like the Yanta law in Denmark, you know? Nobody should think that he is somebody. If you see Buddha on the street, spit on him, you know, make him feel like shit. That's a culture with no anahata, where you cannot simply look up to somebody and say, wow, you know, all my respects, you know, I met with a great soul. On Vishuddha, it's mother-child. In your relationships, have you ever been to one of your partners like a mother? There are men and women who hate this because they have no Vishuddha. And there are women who said, there are men can get in difficulty, there can be a planetary transit or something, and then the woman says, I'm not his mom. You should. 10%, 15%, one of your chakras is that. Men say, I'm not the father of this woman, she's clinging to me like I'm her daddy. You should. It's part of a complete relationship. If you are not, one chakra is missing from your relationship. A relationship contains all these things. When you lack one of these, it's not there. Finally, the ultimate archetype is when Shiva in Ajna Chakra is Ardhanarishvara. Half of Shiva is female, half of the body is female, half of the body is masculine. Like, in the end, when you reach to the level of Ajna Chakra, not to mention Sahasrara, Shiva and Shakti, they start coming together, and here they almost become one. Not quite completely one, because Shiva is split in the middle, female and male, but it's two, and it's one at the same time. So we see how in the chakras, we have an understanding of which parts are male and female. No? And thus, in your relationships, which parts of you are Vira, and which parts of you are Shakti. Then we look at the... Well, this was a superficial approach to it. You can under, we teach polarity of the chakras in the yoga courses of Agama, 
and we teach masculinity and femininity on the chakras profoundly one day each in the Vira and Shakti workshops with exercises and practices and all of that. All, all of that. Then we look at the polarity cosmic and telluric. Are you a cosmic person rather or are you a telluric person rather? Can it be that in a relationship the woman is more cosmic like the woman is a triple air sign astrologically and the man is a triple earth sign and the woman is sanguine and light and rather cosmic, intellectually oriented and the man is very heavy and muladhari. It can happen. So the question is, do we live in a reversed polarity and we accept that the woman is the man and the man is the woman or do we need to do something about it? Again, exceptionally, reversed relationships like this, they can work. They can work for a lifetime or maybe even more. But the question is, do they solve the problem? How will my soul be in 20 lives from now? What is my evolution? What does the nature or God or the Buddhas of the past, present and future, whatever is okay for you, what do the Buddhas of the past, present and future or the masters of Shambhala, what do they want me to develop in this life? What's my little evolution in this life? I'm supposed to grow up 10 centimeters on the scale of evolution. What's those 10 centimeters? Where am I and what am I supposed to acquire in this life? Then, those of you who do the second level of Agama are aware of the polarity between Purusha and Prakriti, which is the essential polarity, Shiva and Shakti. Shiva is the immutable center, unperturbed, totally detached like a witness, and Shakti is the energy, the diversity. Shiva is the hub of the wheel and is one. Shakti is like the spokes of the wheel and is many. Unity, diversity, multiplicity. Stillness, movement. And all that, how are we developing it? Like, for example, I as a woman, how do I manifest my diversity? Many women feel, and that's a perfect illustration of what it is to be a Shakti, the Shakti nature, is that many women feel, I don't know why, but it's like I'm 30 or 40 different women. And sometimes I'm like this, sometimes I'm like that, and it's like, I don't know, it's like I'm 30 women in one skin. It's, I'm many things. And then if, when you read the Kama Sutra, you see the 64 talents of a perfect wife or woman. Floral arrangements, magic, cooking, art of sex. It's like the women which are described in Kama Sutra, they are like 64 different women. They are like a woman can be everything. And it's like that joke which you see on internet that the sexuality of men is like a remote control which has one button on it. It's on, off. And the sexuality of women is like a long, big remote control with some 50 buttons on it and you don't know from which one to press and so on. It's exactly that. Women say, oh, all the guys are the same. Yes. But all the women are not the same. That's precisely the point. All the guys are the same because the Shiva nature 
tends to oneness. And all the women are not at all the same because the female nature is an endless diversity. How do you as man cultivate your stillness? Have you ever done silent meditation? Have you ever done vipassana or some awareness meditation? Are you meditating on sahasrara? When women develop their crazy energy, can you resist? Can you be like a pillar? Can you be like a stone in the middle of the female storm? Because as David Deida says, women unconsciously sometimes release some storms just to prod you, just to see if you are still alive and if you are still a man. Like for the heck of it. They, even they don't understand why they do it. It's a sort of a subconscious tendency to throw a tantrum or do something just to see if the man is a sissy. And if the man goes, oh dear, oh my dear, uh, uh, oh I'm so sorry. <laughs> the woman goes like, oh boy, you know, it's like, oh my God. You know, it's like, this is the guy that is supposed to be the rock in the middle of the storm. You know, it's like, this rock is not a, it's a feather in the wind, you know. This is not a rock in the storm, you know. So, as a masculine, how much have you cultivated your power of transfiguration, your crown chakra, your stability? Many men think that to be a man is to be dynamic and to do things. Actually, in Indian Tantra, the dynamism is the attribute of the Shakti. The very word Shakti means power. It's not the men that are powerful. Okay, they can be muscular physically and big with bigger bones and this. But ultimately, it's not the man who is powerful. It's the female who is powerful. It's a wonderful reflection, that aphorism, which says behind any great man, you should look for a great woman. And the Latin philosophers, they said they had a proverb, a song, in which one of the verses, he says, the woman makes you and the woman undoes you. She does you and she undoes you. The women have the power. This is the world of Shakti. Shakti is the power. The funny thing is that the female nature is the powerful one. But there is something which is specific to men. And then when men look like in a Baywatch, oh, splendid man. And if you do like this to them, they break like porcelain dolls. No? If a woman tells them, I don't love you anymore. Your dick is too small. This and... Ah, I'm traumatized for the next 35 years of my life. Go drown yourself. You know, you're not a man. You know, go in the bay, watch and drown yourself. You know, it's like... That's not the masculine nature. How many men have that... Immovability. Like Shiva Akshobhya. Unruffled. Whatever is happening, you can weather the storm. Your consciousness is wide awake. You can take what's happening. You can bring lucidity and stability. You can bring the awareness to it. No? That's why you, as guys, you are not premenstrual and you are not a lot of things. So that the other part can be. Can be allowed to be. No? As a Shakti, how do you cultivate your diversity? Do you move? Do you dance? Do you look in the mirror? Do you try to play theater? 
you try to be now angry, now sweet, now this, now that, like being ten different personalities in one skin and so on, do you try to cultivate this female nature or are you trying to become as boring as the guys are? Uh, this girl is always the same. No? Like there is nothing diverse. There is no kaleidoscopic color in this. No? You are too square, too simple. So this gives us, when you look into these things, it gives us an even more deep understanding of the Vira and Shakti archetypes. What are we trying to get with these things? And remember, in Tantra, it's a role-playing. Like the men go in their yoga hall, and they say, we're going to do this, and the women are going to go in their yoga hall, and they say, we're going to develop that. And when we finally meet, everybody is coming with their thing. It's like we make a potluck, and I'm supposed to bring the bread, and you're supposed to bring the butter. If there is no bread and butter, there is no potluck. It won't work. We have to have the complementary things there on the table. People say, but Swami, it's very tiresome. Don't come to Tantra. Go to Vedanta, go to some, go do Bhakti Yoga. That's not Tantra. The spirit of Tantra is that you live it out. You accept who you are and what you are, and you live it out. You develop it. You simply accept and say there is a meaning for which I am born, the gender which I am right now. And then I'm going to use this opportunity to go deep into that, to learn my lesson. Thus, there are so many beautiful aspects of the Shiva, Shakti. Um, in India, especially in India, when they study this, there are thousands of years of Shivaism and Shaktism, and there is so much art, poetry, aesthetics, painting, sculpture, symbology, and a lot of other art, theater, drama, and a lot of other things which are giving us hints about the masculine and the feminine. Sometimes, in the West, we find men and women who have a crisis of identity because somehow they are not comfortable with their own gender. And then, instead of surrendering and saying there must be a wisdom of nature, most people choose their ego. Like they say, ah, blah, 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 but forget about all this. I feel good like this. Sure, you feel good like this, but usually what my masters, my, some of my gurus would have said is, if you are a man and you don't accept you are a man, and you think that, okay, well, I'll just wait for 80 years until this nightmare of being in a male body is going to finish. Then tough luck, in the next life you'll be a man again. And in the next life you're going to be a man again. Until you pull the thumb out of your ass and do what you have to do. Because Mother Nature is almighty and very stubborn. And Mother Nature wants to educate you. And you will not be able to fight against Mother Nature ever. That's why always the wisdom is surrender. Accept. Learn your lesson. Because you are what you are for a reason. And that's valid about your astrological sign. It's valid about the country in which you are born. It's valid about your gender. It's valid about a lot of things in which what you are is your lesson in this life 
It is the result of your karma from your previous lives, but it's also the dharma. It's the lesson that you have to learn in this respect. And thus, this is how we work. That's why the tantric world is busy with vira, shakti, no, and you are wondering, like, I wanted to go beyond this, you know, like all these women. I heard that in the Shakti group, there is a day where they talk about makeup. Ah, oh, for God's sake, you know. I'm a woman who don't want to shave my legs and look sexy to men and leave me alone. Don't come to Tantra. You don't want to be a woman. You don't want to play the Shakti element out. When you look at the Indian temples and you see Shakti, there you see Shaktis looking in the mirror, combing their hair, you know, doing feminine things. Like the Shakti has the feminine nature. You may be sick and tired with the Shakti thing. Then you are not going to play Shakti in a tantric couple. Ah, that one case in a million, there will be a woman who is the Vira in the family, and there can be, will be a effeminated man who is the Shakti, and he's shaving his legs, or his pubis, or whatever he's shaving, you know? Sure, that can be the case, and it even can work out as a relationship. But it doesn't mean it's the evolutionary solution of the life for those two people. It's just a temporary postponement in which you simply say, in this life, we didn't go out of our comfort zone. We were weirdly twisted, and somehow we found each other, and we stayed weirdly twisted, and it worked. We were happy. We were complementary to each other. In the big picture, the answer is not yet there. And that's why we want to, in Tantra, we want to solve this in the, weird, in the, in the big picture. And this leads us to the final condition. How does this differ from the ascetic religions and spiritualities, which are like 95%? Either you go in traditional Buddhist, traditional Hinduist, traditional Christianity, there people don't care. Christian nuns don't shave their legs. Because they don't have any reason to do it. They don't have to manifest any sexy femininity. There is nothing about it. So, What's the difference then? Most of these non-gender-based spiritualities, they develop a condition in the human being which is called androgenity. Androgen is a condition which comes from the Greek language. The word comes from the Greek language where andros is man and gin, like in gynecology, is woman. So androgen is man-woman. And it means the acknowledgement of the fact that your soul is made of a part which is yin and a part which is yang. And ultimately your soul is balanced, is beyond gender. And then the idea is that forget about your sexual partners. You are born alone. And when you die, you're going to be alone. If you have a lover or something... And if they are not milarepa, they, which means they are androgens already, they won't be able to do much for you. And that simply says every human being must not live with props. 
Because when you are born and when you die, there are no props. You are alone. All alone. So you have to be able to stand. It's exactly like the woman who says, I never manage. I'm too sensitive. I'm like a daisy. I'm confused and my man is keeping a shield around me. Well, when you'll die, your man will not be there to keep a shield. And then you are suddenly going to be butt naked and exposed. And you are going to say, why didn't I develop some more masculinity in my life? So, every human being has to be complete, whole, 100%. Which means every human being has to be male and female at the same time. That's the androgen. And when you look at Teresa of Avila, or when you look at Paramahamsa Yogananda, you can see that sometimes it's physically there. Ma Mai, a great yogini of India, when she was young she had a husband and a relationship, and when you look at her she's sexy and feminine, and when she was 60 years old or something, her disciples asked her to make a samyama with Shiva, to show to the world that a woman can be Shiva, because a woman is Shiva. There is Shiva in every woman. The masculine is there, and if a woman wants to show it, she can. And there is an incredible photo in the archives and in the books of Mahananda Mai, where they show Mahananda Mai doing Samyama with Shiva. And you look at her face, you won't believe it, because she looks like a man. She's going into a certain state of consciousness where she shows a masculine part of her being. This super sexy, gentle, like a reindeer type of woman, shy, Indian, soft and so on. There, when she has done 60 years of spirituality, she can show you her identity with Shiva as well. Even physically, you can see it on her face. And thus... Androgynous means that every human being, like I was asked two days ago in the Q&A, every human being is born like Adam in the Bible. Adam is man and woman in the beginning. He's both. Adam is the androgyn. Those of you who have a bit of sexual confusion about this, please be aware of the existence of another term, which is sexological and which is biological, and which means something else. Because many of you think that I'm mixing it up. There is another term in modern medicine, and in modern sexology, which is called hermaphroditism. To be a hermaphrodite, which is made from the Greek word Hermes, Mercury, and Aphrodite, the goddess Venus. Hermes and Aphrodite, they had a child who was neither male nor female. And this term applies to people who are biologically having weird conditions, like human beings that have a penis and a vagina, or who are having some ambiguity, biological or hormonal ambiguity, about their sex. And generally these problems are considered to be quite serious medical problems, and they are dealt with in the world of medicine. When I say androgen, I'm not speaking about a man that has a vagina, or about a woman that is born with testicles. I'm not talking about a confusion of the sexual gender. Androgenity is something which refers at the nature of the soul. And that the soul is masculine and feminine. And when a human being is almost a Buddha, 
a human being alone, alone, reaching there, is man and woman at the same time. And if you look at Buddha himself, the statues of Buddha have something feminine in them, not coincidentally. The lines of the Buddha statues are not macho and muscular or anything. There is something effeminated in the art line of a Buddha statue. Exactly to suggest this, and the list could continue. So, actually the great yogis, the great spirits, if they did not do sexual tantra, they have been becoming more and more androgynous. Which means, spiritual women who don't do tantra, now I'm not talking about sexual tantra, spiritual women who grew up in a Christian monastery, they become more masculine. It's like you tell, you speak with your girlfriend, and you say, Mary, be a man. You talk to a girl, you know, but you tell her, man up. Like, your emotions are all over the place. You are too sensitive. You are too vulnerable. Get a bit of thicker skin. Resist. Be tough. No? So, women develop an inner man, and men become more sensitive by prayer, by meditation, by whatever they do, and they develop an inner woman. And then, each one of these persons becomes sufficient unto themselves. Like, I have sex with myself. And that doesn't refer to masturbation. That's a modern formulation of masturbation. But in androgenity, it doesn't mean self-stimulation of a sexual nature. It means a state of fulfillment in which the two polarities are balanced. It's like a sort of a spontaneous inner ecstasy. So, in spirituality, everybody wants you to become an androgen. The end of the road is that when you become complete, you are beyond being a man or a woman. But of course, if you want to show one of them or highlight, you can play a role. Exactly as in the Shakespearean theater and some other theater from India, from China, there were only male actors. So when they played Romeo and Juliet in the 16th century, Juliet was a boy. A young, handsome boy who was looking girlish. There were no female actors in Shakespearean drama because the job of being an actor was considered to be depraved, like they were whoring around and they were drinking and they were... And it was improper for a British woman in the 16th century to live with those depraved actors who were in theaters. It was like no parent would have liked to see their daughter be an actress. There were no actresses. There were only actors. And they played, but they could play girls. Those of them who are more effeminated. By an analogy, it's not the same thing. It's, a, it's just an analogy. By an analogy, we can say that the soul, which is developed on both, and is close to androgenity, is a soul which can be a man, can be a woman. Any role is good for that one, because that one is balanced and developed completely. That's why, of course, at some point in your development, this happens. The question is, how does this happen with sexual tantra? And it happens with sexual tantra as well. Like, although the tantrics, the male tantrics, play vira, and although the female tantrics become shakti, 
they don't forget about the fact that the other polarity, which is dormant, is still necessary. That's why, as a French teacher in Tantra, whom I admired much in his time, Jean-Louis Bernard said, he said the typology of the tantric man is a little bit feminine. Paradoxically, the tantric men are virile. They can really make sex like crazy. They really manifest masculine qualities, but on the outside, when you look at them, they don't look very masculine. Like when a man is very macho type, he's usually not good as a tantric lover. Not very good, usually. Because too much of the masculinity and too little of the Shakti create a sort of a neurosis, create a sort of a not balanced. So the paradoxical thing is that in Tantra we talk about the Vira nature, like you are able to carry your woman and make her feel like a woman, but at the same time the Vira man is learned, like there is a hidden side, which means a lot of sensitivity. Jean-Louis Bernard said, I see tantric men being a little bit like cats. Like being a little bit feminine, you know. Exactly like the cat moves in a way which suggests femininity. Although cats can be tomcats. They can be male cats. And therefore, there's a demonstration. And uh, therefore, uh, there is in tantric men uh, important feminine side. And tantric women, as feminine as they are, they have a strong masculine side. So you can see that feminine tantric women, they get confronted with a man who cannot sublime his energy and he needs to be helped because otherwise he will ejaculate too early. A man in Tantra is confronted with a man who is a bit of an emo and can control his emotions. And then the woman says, boy, I have to be the prosthetic for this guy, you know. I have to play man because this guy is more emotional than I am for the time being. I hope that in two years he'll grow up and stop being a sissy. But right now it's like I have to be holding the space for him a little bit. A woman is having, you know, she's enduring some things, the the relationship is breaking and she hurts in her heart and she says, my heart is broken. How do I wake up from a broken heart and how do I continue to live my life courageously from this moment on? And in this way, a lot of these things are happening and therefore the tantric woman, in spite of her apparent femininity and the fact that she can be a splendid lover when she's in bed or something, she becomes also, she has a steel sword inside her Exactly as when you see certain movies about women who practice, especially on Manipura, this kind of dual things. I'm thinking about these memoirs of a geisha and so on. How you see that some women develop a sort of very interesting masculinity, which is in the middle of a very feminine behavior. Like the general behavior is not that now I'm going to let the hair grow on my legs and I don't care. Like I still play, I can still play woman, but on the other hand, there is a steel sword inside myself. And uh, therefore, um, this androgen condition can be obtained in Tantra as well. In the beginning, we use the other person as a prop. Like a woman says, I'm very feminine, 
right now the full moon is coming and I'm sure at least half of you ladies in this room can feel what I'm saying now and you say I'm horny, I'm crazy, I'm emotionally all over the place and I'm nuts and those of you who are more lucid because some of you are not even lucid to know this you say I guess I need a lingam you know if I would have a big lingam I, I think I would get more centered you know women who are more experienced in tantra they know this they accept it it's a fact which mature women know. No? And then every woman says, I'm not yet a man, I'm premenstrual and it's full moon, and I'm all over the place, and what I need, I need to be centered. So how am I going to get the Shiva part? Well, I have a lover, and my lover is my Shiva. So my lover makes love to me, and then for 48 hours I'm straight as rain. You know, It's like I feel centered, I feel calm, Suddenly I'm not all over the place. Suddenly, you know. And sex is like a prosthetic. Like by sex, I can temporarily get my androgen condition. After I make love, I'm androgenal. Suddenly, my male-female polarity is balanced. And the question is, will that work forever? No. But by repetition, by practicing, by sexual union there appears this reflection of the animus and anima in the other, which you learn in the Tantra workshops, and then it can become a permanent gift. The funny thing is that although the Tantrics, they use external props, like your partner is replacing the missing part of you. In time, if you do that for 10 years, 20 years, you develop that part in you as well, so you have it. And thus, the androgenal condition, the condition of being a complete human soul, as Adam and Eve together, as Shiva, Ardhanarishvara, half woman, half man, that condition appears in you, only that the ascetic religions, they do it in one way, and in Tantra, it is done with the help of an external stimulus. And the external stimulus is your sexual partner who stimulates that in you by repeated practice. And of course, that's why Tantra is not done, Tantric sex is not done just chaotically, because people know what I'm speaking about now, and they go into it like any woman who has done five years of Tantra, looks into herself and says, have I become more masculine internally? Like externally I'm still playing the female geisha, game. But inside am I more masculine? Can I see that I'm more androgen? Have I developed my inner nature so when I die I am whole, I'm complete because I cannot be able to ask my lover come and have sex with me because I'm dying and I have to cross the bardo. That's called necrophilia. you know. So your, your lover won't be there for you to replace your missing polarity when you die. Therefore when you die you have to reach completeness. Do I reach it? Uh, if a tantric woman says, nah, I'm still as sensitive and as vulnerable and as yin as I was five years ago, something is not working. You are not doing it right because you are not growing up. Ah, if a woman was very masculine and then she goes to the Shakti group or to the femininity workshop, and there the leader is telling them, develop your femininity, because you are not even living up to your 
dharma, to your gender. Of course, there can be such cases in which a, a, a teacher can tell you, forget about becoming more masculine. If you are a woman, you are already very masculine. Just open up and develop your femininity. But even that doesn't last forever. Your teacher tells you, okay, four years have passed. Now you are feminine enough. Now get back to the androgenal pursuit. You have to pursue the androgenal state. So this concept of the androgenal state is the gender representation of a tantric ideal. It was used in alchemy where they said that mixing the male part, the sulfur, with the female part, the quicksilver, the mercury, you get the philosopher's stone. And there was a lot of speculation about female and male sexuality and all the other things. So that's why they used this term of androgen that alchemists by drinking sulfur with mercury, which shouldn't be taken literally, because you, you die if you drink mercury and sulfur. It's a metaphor in alchemy. Then you become an androgen. And the same thing was used in, um, is used in sexual tantra. So both sexual practitioners and non-sexual practitioners, they develop an androgenal state of existence which illustrates the glorious condition of the soul, that the soul is neither male nor female. The soul is pure consciousness of a divine nature. But until you get there, you may choose to respect your gender, and then you are welcome in Tantra, or you may choose to ignore your gender, and then you should be in a monastery, in an ascetic monastery, where you don't need to exhibit your gender abilities. So that is how we understand these things in the tantric way and the tantric way is not inferior in any way, it just uses another pathway of going there and the tantric teachers and practitioners they are following that up. Every tantric man knows that after doing 10 years of tantra he is extremely sensitive. He might never show it but the sensitivity is there. A tantric man who did 10 years of tantra and is not sensitive, it's like the feminine half is still asleep. The feminine half, half is dead. It's numb. So of course, we develop these by using the specific modalities of tantra. That's the philosophy behind all this story with vira and shakti. That's why in a tantric school, men try to be viras. Vira means heroes, and the Shaktis try to be feminine, cultivating the values of the Shakti nature. Because these values of your gender, they have a usefulness. They are not for nothing. And the Tantrics believe that you are born what you are born, and you are born who you are born, for a purpose. There is a wisdom of God, or there is a wisdom of the Buddhas of the past, present, and future, which makes that you are what you are now, meditate on those things and those of you who are into tantric or non-tantric celibate practice, apply these principles, apply this knowledge, ask yourselves, muse about what is the development of your androgenal nature in all these ways. With this, we are finishing for tonight. This was the idea which I wanted to bring up and with this we have finished the satsang. Thank you all for 
joining, and I will see you in the coming meetings, Q&As, and satsangs. For tonight, it's enough.